What script did you sell for a million dollars? Wow. Um, so the script I sold for a million dollars was something called Stanley's Cup. And this is like, at this point, it's kind of like ancient history. It was 1995. And I was approached by a producer who um, had this idea for a hockey movie. And they, <laughs> he went to a, another writer who was not available. So, you know, I guess my agent at that time felt I had a similar writing style to the writer he really wanted. <laughs> and uh, so he agreed to develop it with me. So we developed it out together. And, um, you know, and then kind of, I remember reading it before doing the big distribution. And I had this weird experience. I, I, I uh, read the script and got teary at the end, at the climax of my own story, which really doesn't happen that much. So, I mean, maybe, yeah, while watching my bar mitzvah video, I'll get a little weepy. But, the, but while reading the script, generally, I, I'm not affected that way. And I went, oh, my, I think I might have something here. Because it just, it, it, you know, it just touched me in some weird way, even though I had literally just finished the script and I was just rereading it. So, uh, so we went out with the script and um, like almost immediately started getting interest. It's like we went out with the script on a Tuesday. Um, and almost immediately started getting interest. And it was kind of by Thursday night, there was an offer on the table from, um, I believe it was from Disney for $250,000, which was, you know, more money than I'd ever seen in my entire life. And then I had been working for the previous couple of years. So I was, I was, a working screenwriter at that time, but hadn't sold a spec. So, so $250,000 in one chunk seemed like a really swell idea to me. And I get a call from my agent, um, this is on that Thursday night, who says, he goes, I don't think you should take it. I went, really? He goes, I think there's more money out there. I went, okay. So I talk it over with my wife, you know, it's like, and we go, you know, we're going to say no to $250,000. And she's like, okay, you know, let's do this. So they turned it down. And then the next day I was getting like phone calls, like every 25, 30 minutes. It's like, there's now an offer for three. There's an offer for 375. There's an offer for 450. And it just kept going up until it finally hit $800,000 um, against a million one. So, you know, in the business, that's considered a million dollar spec sale. Because um, if the movie had gotten made, there would have been that extra 300,000 that have brought it up to a million one. And finally, my agent says, I think this is the offer to take. And the crazy part about it was that the, um, the company that finally got it um, was a division of Disney. So Disney was basically bidding against Disney and like bidding it up. So it was like, okay, <laughs> it works for me. But uh, yeah, that was like that Friday night, you know, went to bed going, that was a pretty good week. <laughs> yeah, that was a very exciting week. You don't get weeks like that uh, very often. But, um, but and, and not, to, not to be a cold bucket of water on my own story, but I remember going to bed that night going, oh, I'm done. That's great. I don't have to, I don't have to hustle anymore. I don't have to, you know, I felt like, you know, really made it. And the, the truth of it is that, yeah, I got a bump 
a little bit like then like on the heels of that immediately got another job just because I was sort of the flavor of the month kind of thing. Um, but it, you know, you think you sell a spec screenplay and you know, you've made it. It's not a career. That's just a very lucky job, but it's not a career. So, so there was still a lot of career building to be done, which I didn't appreciate as a young, you know, young-ish writer selling a big spec screenplay like that. But, um, but it, it didn't suck. <laughs> what did it teach you about sort of knowing your worth? Because it sounds like you were very close to taking the 250000 Yeah. So it, I don't know that it taught me anything about knowing my worth because like anybody who knows me knows that I've overestimated my own worth pretty much from infancy. So, so I just felt like it's all about what the market will bear kind of thing. Like, you know, like if, if that screenplay was available today, would that ever be an 800,000 against 1.1 million screenplay? I doubt it. Um, because just, it, it just changed. But at that period of time, it was, that's what screenplays were selling for. It was, I mean, people, if they want to look up a little bit of film history, look up like spec sales from, you know, mid 1995. And you'll see it started with um, Cable Guy, really. Um, and that sold for, I think, $750,000. Um, and that suddenly became sort of the touchstone, even to the point where my agent said, when somebody said, what, what's it going to take to take this script off the market? And the response was cable guy money. So that, that became, and there was just this rash of spec sales at that time. I think Joe Esterhaus um, sold something for $4 million and Shane Black, yeah, I don't know if that was... That was before or after Last Boy Scout or um, Long Kiss Goodnight, but it was it was one of those that also sold for like two million. You know, so it was like it was getting into crazy, crazy numbers um, at that period of time. So I always felt that my value is fine, and you know, it's just what people are willing to spend on it. I mean, I've had scripts since then that I feel are just pound for pound much better. It's just as far as conceptually and as far as the story goes and, and depth and my own ability as a writer and it just never sold. Right. So it's like, you never know. So, you know, so if I, if I, if I defined my worth based on a piece of material, then that particular Friday when I went to bed, you know, my value would be really high. And the Fridays that I went to bed when I didn't sell something that week, my value would be low. I go, no, my value is consistent. It's just what people are willing to uh, to pay for it. And things come and go. I mean, it's like, I had a script that I, I wrote literally in 1989 that didn't get made until uh, 2006. So 16 years from the time I wrote it. And it was a good script. <laughs> Who knows? Right? But you can for sure, you cannot... If you if you let the if you let the you know vague sense of yeah I'm only I'm, my worth is only defined by my material you, you'll you know you'll want to get out of this business really quickly. How does payment generally work when a screenwriter sells a screenplay? Ah, oh, it it's a very it's a very fun day <laughs> because um, it takes about couple of weeks, you know, between the time because, uh, 
you sell it, and then business affairs now has to hash out all the contractual bits and pieces of it. And so that's a couple of weeks worth of work. And then once the contracts are all signed, then just somebody, usually your agent says, we have a check here for you. Because, um, and then you get, you know, you see all the deductions come out, you know, it's like, you know, it, it feels like if I said, oh yeah, it, the, the, the selling price was $800,000 on that spec screenplay on Stanley's Cup. But um, I, I forget how much the check was for, but tw this 25% came off immediately off the top. You know, 10% to a manager, 10 to an agent, five to my lawyer, right? And, uh, you know, so you start going, you know, okay, so that came off. And then I think I think I was still like a W-2. I don't, I don't know if I had my loan out company at that time. So now taxes come out. Anyway, you end up with probably by the time you get done, 30% of, of the thing. So it's a little heartbreaking, but still, it's still a lot of money. You know, it's like, you know, you get a check like that. And um, I remember picking up the check. I was with William Morris at the time. And I remember picking up the check from them and like walking it over to the bank to deposit it because I didn't even want to, like I didn't even want to like carry it home and then go to the bank later. I just want to go right from there to there so that nothing, could, nothing would happen to it. So um, yeah, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a pretty straightforward you know, um, process with the exception that you, know, you don't often hold a check that has so many zeros on it. What did this experience teach you about the business? I think the experience of selling a big spec screenplay like that really kind of taught me that it's a, I mean, it's everything you think going into it and then it's sort of processing it afterwards. So going into it, you think, like I was saying before, great, I've made it. I don't have to worry anymore, right? And then afterwards you go, oh, no, I actually still have to come up with stuff. People aren't going to keep handing me things to do just because I sold this screenplay once. And um, it, it just taught me that it's you constantly have to hustle and, and not be afraid to reinvent yourself and generate ideas. Um, one, of my, one of the agents that I had at that time um, had what I still think is uh, kind of cynical yet might be really accurate, good advice. Um, when I was asking like, oh, well, what should I work on next? And he goes, he goes, I don't know, but make it derivative and make it quick. That idea, you just have to, it's, I mean, occasionally like, like you know, I, haven't, I haven't taught screenwriting in seminars for a while, but when I did, I would usually start with asking everybody who was coming to hear me talk, um, like how long does it take you to write a screenplay? And I'll go, you know, if it takes you, you know, everybody takes, you know, uh, three months, raise your hand. And, you know, a couple of hands would go up, right? You know, six months, you know, more hands would go up, right? You know, eight months to a year, you know, probably that's where the bulk of the hands went up. And I said, anyone who did not raise your hand for three months, you're probably not gonna make it in the business. Because you don't have time. If you if you want to make it, if you if you want to have a career, it's going to take you ten years of, of slugging away at it. You know, slogging away at it to to launch a career. And if you're writing one screenplay, you know, every year, 
it's like, you know, okay, well, I agree. That was 10 screenplays, but you're not going to get any good until you get to your seventh or eighth screenplay anyway. So just bang them out, you know, like learn something from every screenplay. So make it and make it derivative at that time just meant, you know, oh, uh, you know, there's a movie that you really liked from 10 years ago. You know, if there's something derivative from that that still speaks to you, you should work on that. But also don't work on it for a year, just bang it out. So, I mean, I was, I was, you know, at that period of time, I was just trying to be a machine. I mean, I, I'd be cranking three, four scripts a year, specs, you know, just because you just had to keep, it's like buying lottery tickets, right? It's like, you, just, you know, buy one lottery ticket, you buy a hundred lottery tickets, you got maybe a greater chance statistically. So every screenplay is a lottery ticket. So, so that's kind of like what I, I learned from it is that, yeah, it's just, you know, constantly have to hustle. You can feel good about yourself for a little bit after some success and you want to take the successes you want to feel good about yourself but but don't let the successes define you or take you off your guard or make you feel you know lazy you know or you know ah you know i don't have to do anything anymore no constantly have to do stuff in some sense did it almost create more pressure because now more is expected of you no interestingly it and this is going to be kind of a weird thing to say if I had it all to do over again, knowing what I know now, um, I would have preferred not to sell a spec screenplay. Because that money goes away. That doesn't last. What you want to do is build a career. So what happens, or in my experience, as a result of selling that spec screenplay, it artificially, I was, I was a solid writer at that point. I, you know, I think I had worked on, on the, like the very first thing I did was like a script doctoring gig um, for, um, uh, the Amazing Panda Adventure for Warner Brothers. That was like the first real paying. Oh no, that wasn't. That wasn't the first paying thing. The, the first paying thing I did was um, was actually I got paid to write Bloodsport too, right? But that was you know kind of like not a major studio type of thing. Um, but it got me into the guild. But the first studio job that I had uh, was for Warner Brothers and for the Amazing Panda Adventure, and I think it paid forty thousand dollars for like two weeks of work, which is. Even today, that doesn't suck, right? But I think it was forty thousand dollars for two weeks of work as a script doctor, right? Because they liked my dialogue, and you know they needed a dialogue polish on it, so I did that. Then they liked the work so much that I got um, as the first writer on Dennis the Menace two, right? And that paid ninety thousand, right? So, and, but that, and that was two months of work or so, right? So. You know, and then I think after Dennis the Menace 2, I think I optioned something for not a lot of money. Oh, but then I got, then I got hired to, um, to, I don't want to say script doctor, but to do a pass on what turned into a, an Olsen Twins movie, It Takes Two. So I was like the second writer on them. I don't have a credit, and we can discuss the joys of Writers Guild arbitration at some point if you'd like. But I didn't get a credit on that one, but that paid 150000 so like I, I, was, I was sort of like building, like my quote was going up organically and naturally. And then from 150, jumped to 800,000. So that artificially inflated my quote because now it's like my agents are in this weird situation where it's like, well, you know, we want Jeff to work on, on the screenplay. What's his quote? And you can't say, well, 175, you know, like, or 200 because of the last quote, you know, the quote, now it gets artificially inflated. So I'm sure there were a number of jobs that were just was 
they would have been happy to pay 250 but not happy to pay five or 750 or something like that you know what i mean so so in a weird way it it kind of priced me out of the market um you know and then i had to take a step back and you know and kind of sort of rejig you know my career and say let me look at television also let me you know like expand so you know, so it was kind of, I don't want to say that that selling the spec was the worst thing that ever happened to me. It clearly wasn't. But with the benefit of hindsight and a little bit more knowledge of how the business works, it was like, yeah, you know, I don't know. But then again, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who, you know, come from nowhere, sell a big spec, and, you know, just, you know, that's their, you know, that becomes their career path and, and it's all fine. I think what, what I think what really what didn't help the most, if that's the way to put it, is that the fact that the movie never got made. You know, had the movie gotten made and it was a hit, that that changes one's career trajectory. So this was was purchased, it it was it had a um, a very uh, specific time frame with which it had to go into production. Um, like it was purchased in May and it was supposed to go into production by October. It had uh, Dennis Leary attached to star and Chris Farley um, as the co-star. Um, just really is sort of a weird kind of sports comedy about the Stanley Cup going missing, right? So, um, so I had Dennis Leary and Chris Farley and uh, the director was uh, Jim Abrams, you know, um, from, you know, Airplane and you know, the Abrams, you know, the uh, Zucker, you know, Abrams team. Um, so it had like all the elements in place to be fast tracked into production, but but Jim Abrams was going through a dark period in his life because he had a son who was uh, uh, very ill. Um, so he was like very. Who I think the son is fine or was fine, you know, afterwards. But he he really wanted to make it less of a silly comedy and get like more serious. Of it, so they hired some other writers to come in after me, and they did a draft, and it became kind of very serious. And the studio didn't like it; they liked the the funnier version of it. But now it's like it's gone down, and they paid those guys five hundred dollars, I have five hundred five hundred thousand dollars to rewrite the screenplay that they already paid, you know, eight hundred thousand dollars for, and then it became sort of unusable. And so then they were in the process of going back to say, okay, let's kind of go back to what we liked, um, and then Chris Farley passes away and then so it was like this sort of domino effect of just ill-timed fortune um so had it gotten made i think sort of the, the lessons would have been potentially different but um well i love where you took it at what point did you realize this isn't happening um when i i as a courtesy i was sent the rewrite of the script um and, um, and I read it and I went, I just felt with everything in my gut that this thing is just not, not shootable. Um, it, it was, I mean, the, the script was, I mean, at the risk of sounding like an old TV guy thing, it was like a zany comedy, you know, you know, road trip comedy, you know, with hockey's Stanley Cup. And, this, and the rewrite turned it, like no joke, basically into Rain Man. Um, you know, it was, you know, they turned it into like a, you know, my zany comedy turned into like a serious exploration of the problems of the mentally ill. You know, I was like, you know, you, you couldn't have gone more different. I'm going, 
who wants to see this? I mean, it, it was like, so at that point I was going, okay, I think we're in trouble here. And then, and then sort of a cascading series of events from there. Why do you use four-act story structure instead of three-act story structure? Um, uh, because I'm Jewish. Okay. It's, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> the four sons, the four cups of wine, the four acts. It's, it's every, every Passover we sit at the table and we drink another cup of wine to each one of the acts. I'm kidding. Stop <laughs> it. It's a joke. Okay. Um, but I wasn't kidding. I am Jewish. The, um, I found it to be an easier way of... Of just thinking, it, it just it, it makes things balanced, you know. Like three acts, and on a typical three act structure, it's act two is twice as long as act one and act three. So why not just call it four acts already? So you can have like act one, act two A, act two B, and then you know, and then act three. I mean, I used to, I think in the early days when I was working on the system, I think that's how I was calling it, and then that just felt confusing. So I just went with you know act one, two, three, and four. So it's a four act structure, but it's all the same. I mean, it's it's all you know three act structure. I forget who it could be Truby does a six act structure. Sitfield's three acts. It's like you know it's we're all talking about the same stuff. It's really just here's your pie. You're gonna slice it into eighths or sixteenths or whatever. So you know, and then and then other pieces of of my understanding of story structure played nicely with the four acts, so, you know, the, the four archetypes, you know, things like that. It, it, so it just felt like uh, four acts made things, kind of brought a nice order to the universe. Did anybody fight you on it or no? Oh, yeah, just... they fight, people fight me all the time. But I mean, in terms of, did, did they say, yeah, that can't be done? It's always, you know, and you said, sure, why not? Why it's 2A, 2B? And... No, it, yeah, it's, it's like, and, and every, every conversation I have like that is always just, Silly. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, it happens now. It's where, like, I'll talk to people who are working on, on like um, TV shows, like um, you know, even even like a um, like an episode of a, of television, where it's it's every story's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. So at the very least, you can subscribe to a three act structure for your TV show. But people say, well, but we don't have commercials. So therefore, it's one act. I'm going, okay. <laughs> if whatever floats you by, it, it all comes out the same anyway. See, I'd like to think that that the my understanding of story structure is not proscriptive; it's descriptive. So I just choose to describe a well-told story like this. Somebody else could choose to describe a well-told story using different terms and different terminology. I mean, everybody does, you know. You know Blake Snyder, you know, had you know, his way of, uh, of looking at it, Truby, you know, McKee. You know, we're all talking about the same stuff. It's not like, it's not like you know, if you looked at, you know, Star Wars or, you know, Avengers Endgame, you know, it's like the movies become different depending on how you describe the structure of it all. So, you know, so to me, it's it's just it's kind of a semantic sort of argument. Just for my purposes, it just it it makes things very orderly um, when you look at it in terms of sort of the flow of a of a story. You can divide it into quarters. What are plot points, and why are they important? <laughs> so plot points are descriptive 
discrete, in my understanding, right, discrete chunks of information that add to the overall knowledge of the story. So, so for example, um, if we had a, um, let's, let's say we, I, make, I make up a fictional movie, okay, and it's like, you know, we, we come up, it's, you know, the camera pans through, you know, a Manhattan living room in, you know, at, right after sunrise. And you know it's Manhattan because you can see the Empire State Building out the window. And it ends up on, in, and you see like there's a music stand, you know, that as the camera's moving through this apartment. So you know, okay, somebody's into music. And then there's a, an artist's easel. So they're into music and also art. And then the camera ends up in this bedroom and, you know, and the alarms go off. You know, there are two people in bed and each has their own alarm set for the exact same time, right? And, you know, and two hands reach out and shut off the alarms and the guy gets out of bed on his side and the woman gets out of bed on her side and they go into their bathroom and then the camera's following this. These either cuts or, you know, one continuous movement, however you want to direct it. Um, but we see that they're brushing their teeth um, at two separate sinks and they're really talking to each other, um, you know, brushing their teeth at two separate sinks. And then they go have breakfast together. He's reading his newspaper. She's reading her newspaper. Still not really talking. You know, she gets up to go to work. And they have a little kiss. It even doesn't seem bad. It just seems like it's a kiss goodbye. She goes off to work and, um, and is having coffee at some, you know, Starbucks. And she looks over and there's this couple clearly in love, okay? And she looks at them as they're hugging and they kiss and she just bursts out crying, right? And there's an old woman next to her and she goes, what's the jerk's name, sweetheart? And she goes, Ben, right? So how many plot points was that? It's, it's, a, tr it's a trick question. You could say, well, it's Manhattan, it's the, the artist easel, it's the, you know, it's the music stand. We saw them in bed, and it's it's one plot point, you know. There's this guy and a girl, and their relationship sucks. That's it. Everything else about that is necessary to lay some pipe for the story. Who's somebody's into art? Somebody's into music. They are living together. You know, there's no communication going on. But it's all about they. Julie and Ben. Let's say her name is Julie. Julie and Ben have a lousy relationship, and it's killing her. Right? So that's, that's plot point. So, so plot points don't have to be, it, it's like there's beats, there's scenes, you know, then uh, there's plot points. So to me, a plot point is you think of like a, you know, like a pearl necklace, and plot point is another pearl on that necklace. And it's, it's not meant to be, and, and some plot points could be, you know, just one, one beat. But this plot point I described was basically... I don't know, 14 beats, something like that. You know, it's probably 14 beats. If you, I was writing it as a script, it's probably seven scenes, like the, the apartment in the morning and the breakfast and the, you know, like everything would have its own slug line. You know, interior, Julian Ben's apartment, bathroom, interior, Julian Ben's apartment, kitchen, you know, or montage, but, each, but when you shoot it, the montages get broken down into, so it's probably seven scenes in terms of like strict movie making. How many plot points? One. 
right? So, so that became, you know, that's a big part of my understanding of story is, is how many plot points does it take to tell a, a complete and ample story as our friend Aristotle might say. Um, and to me, the magic number turned into 44. There's that four again, right? Turned into 44. Even, yeah. Right? <laughs> and, it, it, the, and the whole getting up to 44 was kind of a weird sort of exploration anyway. And it doesn't have to be 44, 43, 47. But if you tell me, you know, a, a, your typical, you know, two-hour movie is 85 plot points, I'll be like, I politely disagree. It's too much. You know, or you're, or you're thinking about beats maybe, you know, not plot points. And, and also just, just, you know, for clarity's sake, again, it's just descriptive, right? It's, maybe this is the part where I'm actually getting proscriptive because I believe very firmly in there's the, the film that gets sold and the film that gets made. So I am obsessed with the film that gets sold because that's the one that you write and you try to get people to fork over money for it. But that's the one you have control over. That's like yours as a writer. And, and that's the one that, that you can really influence. Once you sell it, like if we go back to the Stanley's Cup story, I had no control. Once, once I sold it, no control over the direction of the of the story and how would it get rewritten and who's going to be in it and what's the director's take on it you know so it's like so i'm i'm really occupied myself with the writing a script that could get sold um and for that you want to tell a story in a way that the person who will buy it um can understand it and and that story can kind of get into their heart and soul. So to me, 44 plot points turned into, that's a very manageable story. And following, you know, a, a kind of a, um, a guideline of what does a well-told story look like, um, just felt to me like that, that enhances your chances of selling something because you're telling you're telling a story in a way that people are kind of programmed to hear the story you know um which is not to say that people shouldn't do crazy ambitious stuff it just you know everything everywhere all at once is crazy ambitious doing really well i haven't examined it to see but i can almost guarantee you even with all that's going on um that it you know that it is hitting it's 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 hitting the plot points in, in the right order and in the right places. It just does it with crazy wild imagination, right? So, you know, so for me, it's not like every, it's not like every good movie or every, every popular movie has to follow this system, but, you know, or every movie written or every movie ever made follows this exact system. It doesn't, right? But every movie that, that really kind of sinks in and gets to people, um, pretty much, whether it is intentionally or not, is following something very similar to what I prescribe. What is the central question? Ah, uh, the central question. I love, I love me a good central question. So the central question, not to sound like I'm quoting, but I think I might be. So the central question is the question that once it's definitively answered yes or no, your story is over. So, and central questions apply to screenplays for sure 
and even TV series, like a, like a season of a television show might have a central question for the TV for that season, and each episode might have its own, has its own central question for um, you know for each episode. So it's a central question is really just a way to make sure that you're hitting sort of the the emotional and intellectual and um, personal thrust of the story. So, so really, a good central question has is really like three components. You know, it's pretty like you know, I think Sid Field called it like professional, personal, and private. You know, um, which was this idea that if you look at like um, you know, Star Wars is kind of a classic example that. I use. You ever seen Star Wars? Okay, so Star Wars. Um, you say, what's the the central question of Star Wars? The professional question is, will um, will Luke destroy the Death Star? Right. The um, personal question is, will he save Princess Leia? And the private question is, will he be a Jedi like his father? Right. So if you look at Star Wars, you know the professional, personal, and private. You go that all three of those get answered right at the climax of the movie, right? He destroys the Death Star. So yeah, sure, he went in and he saved Princess Leia from the jail cell, but they let him get away because they would lead him to the rebel base, right? And um, the, the way of saving Princess Leia for real, because she's on the planet that the Death Star is about to destroy, right? So the way to save Princess Leia ultimately is to destroy the Death Star. And the way to destroy the Death Star is he's got all the technology and stuff that he's using, but he shuts it off and he uses the force. So in one fell swoop, right, in one moment in the climax, he uses the force, saves the princess by destroying the Death Star. So the central question is answered in the affirmative, yes, yes, and yes. Yeah, will he, yeah, will he save Princess Leia, yes. Will he destroy the Death Star? Yes. Will he become a Jedi like his father? Yes. Movie's over, right? So, you know, it becomes very... And, and they don't all have to be answered yes. I mean, Dark Knight, you know, is interesting. It's, you know, if I recall the central question of Dark Knight properly, it's, you know, it's will, will um, Bruce Wayne get the girl is the, you know, is the... Uh, you know, personal question, right? Will he fall in love, you know, have a relationship with Rachel? Professional is, will he stop the Joker? And the private is, can he, can he be the hero that Gotham City needs, right? You know, can he rise to that challenge? So you look at it goes, well, yeah, he defeats the Joker, but he doesn't get the girl, right? He, he loses her and he becomes, it's the great line, it's the, it's, it's the, he becomes the hero that Gotham doesn't want, but Gotham does need. So he does become the hero, but not in the way that he was expecting it. So, and that's part of what, why Dark Knight is such a brilliant movie, because it, it's very clear on the central questions, but it doesn't, it doesn't give you the, the happy ending, kind of walk off into the sunset kind of, uh, of conclusion. What is the central question for Stitchers? Yeah, I have to think about that. I, I know I wrote it once. <laughs> well, the the original, it's it's it depends because central question is often defined by the your central character. Um, like a good central question is is about like in the Dark Knight 
you know, uh, example, it's about Bruce Wayne, Batman, right? That's, and in Star Wars, it's about Luke. So the central question is really a, f a function of whoever your main character is, right? So for, for Stitchers, with our main character being, you know, Kirsten, uh, who had this made up, you know, you know, illness, this temporal dysplasia, you know, which, which made her like, you know, a person who like has, like she's in a, lives in a constant state of deja vu. Like everything seems immediately familiar to her, right? So the, the professional question is, will she become a part of this government lab? Because she's kind of recruited to solve, help solve a murder, even though they've kind of had her eye on her for a while. So will she become part of this team? It would be like the professional question. The personal question is, um, will she be able to develop a relationship with the male lead, you know, Cameron? And then the private question is, will she um, really discover what happened to her, you know, her mother? Because there's this like whole mystery, like the mom is, you know, is presumed to be dead, but isn't really. And I mean, there is a way to look at the central question, like how do you know what's a good central question? So the professional part of the central question is the thing that means a lot to a lot of people. And the personal part means a lot to a few people, and the private means a lot to one person. So, so going back to Star Wars, for, did you see Star Wars? So going back to Star, I'm just gonna keep doing that joke. So going back to Star Wars, destroying the Death Star means a lot, that's a professional question, means a lot to a lot of people, right? It's blowing up planets, it's everybody in the entire galaxy far, far away wants the Death Star destroyed. So destroying the Death Star means a lot to a lot of people. Will Luke save the princess means a lot to a few people. It certainly means a lot to the princess. It means a lot to the rebels. I don't know that saving the princess means a lot to somebody on some planet, you know, far, you know, on the other side of the galaxy, right? It doesn't mean a lot to everybody. So it means a lot to a few. Will Luke become a Jedi like his father means a lot to Luke. So, so that's a good way to look at your your central question, like what means a lot to a lot of people, a lot to a few, and a lot to one. And, and that's a good way to kind of define your central question. And it, it helps focus your, your main character. Because everybody's kind of obsessed with, you know, character-driven stories and stuff like that, which sounds odd because I, I, I always approach my stories from a plot-heavy stance first rather than, you know, rather than character. A character comes later in some weird way. I know, I'm, this is like, controversial and people will think that, you know, I'm an idiot or will wildly disagree with me about it. You know, and it's like I'm, I'm espousing some like satanic approach to storytelling. What? Plot first, character second? I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because I like, like characters pop into my story head kind of fully formed. So I don't worry about them as much as I worry about telling the, getting the plot right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of it's sort of a double-edged sword, uh, you know. I, I I stopped myself. I was going to say something controversial, like like if you have a really well-told story with a poorly constructed main character, you might very well still sell that because somebody will look at it and go, oh, here's what this character needs to do to better serve this really well-constructed story. So, so, because you're gonna get notes and you're gonna get rewritten and stuff like that. 
So if you have a fundamentally really strong, really solid story, but there's some character flaws in the development of those characters, not character flaw like you know they steal or something, like a character flaw in your construction of that character, um, you might still very likely sell that story um, and then work on the character afterwards. But if you have a really poorly constructed story, but it has a great character, I don't know. I don't know if you're ever going to sell that. It, it's just it's too much. It's too much of a heavy lift. You know, it's I I I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to hear from people who've maybe had that experience. But to me, with everything I know about the business and about marketing and about selling and about what people want or don't want. It feels to me like it's a much safer bet to have a strong story with a character that could use a little bit of work. If the character is terrible, I mean, then it's, you know. But if, if you're within spitting distance of a well-constructed character who's in a really well-constructed story, that's far better than, you know, you're, you know, having a perfectly constructed main character who's saddled with this just useless story. Is the central question also a story engine? Um, yes and no. It's a story engine to the extent that it, it helps create certain parameters by which you should tell the story. Um, but it's, a, it's really a litmus test more than anything else. The, fir the first main purpose of the central question is to define where act one ends and where act two begins. Because your, your act one is laying all the pipe for the rest of your story. It's the foundation of the house. So your central question comes in at the end of act one. And I don't mean it comes in like, you know, <laughs> somebody brings in a box and they go, here's your central question. But your, your central question should be clearly defined at the end of act one. You know, so like at the end of act one, in Star Wars, again, did you see Star Wars? At the end of Act One in Star Wars, you know, um, Luke has had his aunt and uncle killed. He's, they know that the princess is in trouble. Um, Obi-Wan has said, you must come with me if you want to be a Jedi like your father, you know? Um, and he goes, you know, I can't. I got to go, you know, milk the space cows or whatever. So... You know, and then he goes back home and realizes that you know, he said, now he's got nothing to hold him there. And he comes back and goes, there's nothing to keep me here. I, I want to go with you. I want to save the princess. I want to be a Jedi like my father. And that's the end of Act One, you know, as they're about to go down into, you know, Moss Eisley and the bar and that great, you know, cantina scene. Um, but all those, we, we know very clearly what his professional, personal, and private journey now is going to be through the rest of the story. And that's the landmark. That's the, the flag that the storyteller waves to say act one is now over, it's now time for act two. So you can use, as a writer, you should use the central question to help define your switchover from act one to act two. And if it's not clear, it's like, you know, I don't know what my character's main mission is going to be in the story. And by mission, I don't mean that you gotta go below the death row. The mission could be a love story, right? Mission could be a medical drama. It's like whatever that professional thing, the thing that means a lot to a lot of people, um, that sh should be clear as should be the, your main character's personal desire and then the, the private need of the character. And once that's all clear, that's the end of Act One. I, I can't tell you the number of scripts I've consulted on where it's like you just read it and you're on page 
you know, 75, and it's still not clear what your character needs to accomplish. And you go, oh my God, it's like, this is like a never ending act one. There's so much fat in there. Um, yeah, so that central question is a really good litmus test to, to, for you to say, have I told my act one properly? That's like building a house. If you know, I build, have I built my foundation properly? Yep, professional, personal, private. Yep, done, good. Let's move on now to the first floor of the house. Right? You don't want to build the first floor on a faulty foundation. So it's, it's a good test for that. And then to go to your question of story engine, it's, you just, it's a story engine only in that you go, oh, I got a really great idea for a scene. And you start writing out that scene. You have to ask yourself, is this, am, I res if, am I answering the central question definitively yes or no on the professional storyline, the personal storyline, or the private? Am I moving that part of the story forward, you know, in some new way? And if you're not, then, then it's probably the wrong scene or beat or moment because you're not advancing the story based on the central question. So central question is not really a story engine, it's just it's that mirror that you can hold up to your, to your story so that you have a sense of, am I Am I satisfying, I, I made my audience a promise with the central question. Everything that comes afterwards has to honor that promise. I promised I would tell them the story of Luke becoming a Jedi like his father. I promised that I would tell the story of Luke saving the princess. I promised I would tell the story about trying to stop the Death Star. And if you look at the story, every beat is something about one of those three components. And you know, if it's like cut to, you know, Luke goes to a pet shop and decides that he wants to buy a dog. You go, it might be the sweetest, cutest, most fun scene, you know, in the history of fun scenes, but, you know, it's not moving the story forward. And this is actually, just going back to Star Wars again, there's, there's plenty of, um, of outtakes and, and scenes that were shot that, um, that exist that you can find. And just watch those scenes and go, oh, that's why I didn't make it into the finished story, right? That, because it's not, it's not advancing. It's, it's not adding another pearl to the necklace. It's really just em you know, emphasizing a pearl that's already there. And you go, you don't need it, right? So yeah, it's, it's, you've got to be judicious on it. And it's kind of like another reason why, you know, because I, I've worn many hats in my career when I started off in editing. Um, back in the editing rooms in New York, you know, in film and sound editing. And, you know, I would just watch the, the anxiety, you know, as they, they would get all this footage in and say, oh my God, they've so overshot. Um, and stuff they don't need, and like stuff that gets cut out and cut out and cut out. Like everybody knows the stories of like people's performances end up on the cutting room floor, and the first cut of a movie was four and a half hours long, and they finally get it down to, you know, 90 minutes, you know, who's, you know how much time and money that wastes, um, like, it's just crazy. So, so I'm a fan of, you know, construct a really well-told story. Don't, don't fill it with fluff. Don't have Luke going to get dogs because it's not going to, it's not, never, never going to make it into the finished product anyway. What is the Jungian concept of the hero within and how does it work within storytelling? So. So the whole Jungian approach for filmmakers feels like it's a bit of a catch-all bucket um, where, you know, like everybody 
likes to put into Young Yang. And Young Yang was very, dealt with a lot of like symbols and hidden meanings and things like that. But in the, the most, I think, concise and well-constructed version of this came from a, the book, Hero Within, um, by a person named Carolus Pearson, um, who I don't, even think, I don't think she's alive anymore. This book's fairly old. But, um, but you know, Carol, if you're still with us, I apologize. <laughs> but I, I, th I think she may have passed on. But anyway, but she, she was a psychologist who wrote a book uh, as a self-help book. You know what the idea, and it was like, the hero within, I think it's like six archetypes we live by. And, and her idea was that, was that if you can define yourself by one of these six archetypes, you know, which was like, you know, a warrior, wanderer, orphan, martyr, innocent, magician. There you go. I actually got them all. Um, so, if it, so you can kind of define yourself by one of these archetypes. You could then say, well, I don't want to be a martyr. I want to be a warrior. And then she was able to chart, well, how does, based on classic literature, how did stories that had orphans who became, or you know, martyrs who became warriors, what was that journey like? And so she was sort of interestingly extrapolating from literature self-help lessons, uh, which is really kind of interesting. Like, you know, like most people who get into writing kind of define, you know, like I want to be like, you know, Bruce Wayne when I grow up. I want to be like, you know, whatever, you know, you know, Harry and when Harry met Sal. You know, it's like, it's like you start imagining yourself as these characters. She kind of went the other way. She says, you know, she was kind of like, you know, you can, you can learn lessons from those characters and reimagine yourself, you know, into a different character. It was kind of like an interesting approach. So, um, so for her, it was, it was a self-help manual. Um, and which kind of described sort of the history of literature. And I think it was like literature and poetry and um, theater that she was, she was pulling her information from. Um, I mean, I tripped upon it from um, a friend of mine who's a very gifted writer who, um, who got kind of uh, shafted by one of the Writers Guild strikes, you know, kind of like just cut him off at the knees at, at a certain point. Um, but brilliant mind, brilliant writer, great insights into storytelling. A lot of, a lot of the, the things that I understand about story came from this ongoing conversation I had with him. His name is Gilbert Evans. And, uh, and so very much the, you know, a lot of my whole approach to storytelling was based on this ongoing conversation Gil and I would have back and forth about, oh, I just realized this. Oh, I just realized this. And we would like kind of share this information. And he had stumbled across this book, um, you know, the, um, the Hero Within. And and I, I like clearly remember this conversation, and, and I'm talking about like 1997, 1998, you know, somewhere around there, where Gil um, where, um, calls me up and goes, oh, I just discovered this really cool book called The Hero Within. It's got these six archetypes, and I was looking at some of the movies that I really like, and I noticed that the main character moves through four of the six archetypes like clockwork. 
I was like, really? So he was saying, yeah, it's like act one, the main character is an orphan of some kind, either a figurative orphan or a literal orphan. So the main character is an orphan of some kind in act one. Act two, they become a wanderer. Um, and we'll, we'll tie it back to the central question at some point. But act two, they become a wanderer. Act three, in my four-act structure, they become a warrior. And act four, they become a martyr. And it's like, wow, it's really interesting. It can't possibly be true, but it's really interesting. And then I started looking at movies and stories and going, oh my God, it is true. Like every well-constructed story, the main character goes through these four archetypes like clockwork. Um, you know, and it's, it just became like this, it almost became like the, it's like one of the defining cornerstones of, you know, of, um, of my whole understanding of story was that like so many things kind of like fell into place as a result of understanding those four archetypes. Um, even to the point where, you know, like one of the earliest kind of aha moments I had was talking to an exec at Disney um, who I pitched some story, I don't remember what it was anymore. But I pitched him a story and he went, yeah, that was okay, but your story, you know, didn't answer the four central questions. I was like, okay, <laughs> what, what might those four central questions be? And it's like, who's your main character? You know, what are they trying to accomplish? Who's trying to stop them? And what happens if they fail, right? So, so suddenly you went, you know, understanding the archetypes suddenly start, started to shed some light on the, the central question, not central questions, the, uh, you know, the four questions of, of the film. Like, who's your main character? It's on the orphan. What's he trying to accomplish? That's wanderer, right? You know, who's trying to stop them, right? That's warrior. Because somebody's trying to stop you, you're going to stop them back. That's warrior. And what happens if they fail? That's martyr. So it's like suddenly like everything started folding in on itself, you know, that these archetypes started now relating, relating to, you know, the four main questions of, uh, you know, of your story, which then started relating into the four acts of the, of the structure that I had. And you can now start saying, oh, well, act one is who's your main character and orphan, you know, act two, right? And it's just everything just started like, like lining up really, really neatly as a result of that. So, um, you know, I think there's probably also all sorts of reasons that really smart people know why it works that way. I was just happy that it worked. You know, it's like, I, I don't need to understand the schematic to my microwave to, you know, fill a piece of chicken. I'm just happy it does it when I hit the fill up button. So there's probably people out there with a much more intellectual and academic understanding of exactly why this works. I'm just happy it does. And I think there's also a school of thought that, you know, in each of these archetypes that we all possess or all of our characters possess, that there's a dark and a light to them mm -hmm. and, and how that could be a hindrance or helpful in the story to your character's journey. Mm -hmm. So, right. um, you know, you could say the warrior is, is brave, but also the warrior could also start fights mm -hmm. and, and, and it could cause problems. Um, the innocent could be uh, charming and, and sweet, but also it could be taken advantage of, you know, so there's different things mm -hmm. that... Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Right. And that, and, that, and that actually plays in with uh, the unity of opposites, which is like a whole other you know, part of it. You know, that whole idea that, that there's, you, you want to have a layered character. You, you want to have characters that, that are not just one dimensional. I mean, you can, 
you know, and, and those, are, those are perfectly fine characters and they live in perfectly fine stories. Um, where it starts getting interesting though, right, is the difference between, you know, Bruce Wayne in the, uh, in the Dark Knight versus Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, right? So it's, it's this, you know, you, you get a more complex character, but, you know, but the, the, there's a caution that comes with that is that people sometimes will overly complicate a character just for the sake of overly complicating them. And, and then the pieces don't hold together, right? You want to be able to, you want to be able to like really understand why a character does what they do. Like, and not, I'm not even necessarily talking about like anti-heroes or like a good example because by their very nature, but, but you, you want to have these layered complex characters. You know, Walter White you know, from Breaking Bad was a brilliantly complex character. Right, um, you know, which was just by itself like a brilliant piece of storytelling, you know, you know by Vince Gilligan. The um, the idea, how do you how do you take, like, I think even he said, like, we want to take Mr. Chips and turn him into Scarface, right? So that idea of how do you take a guy who's just a family man and he's dying of cancer and he's a high school chemistry teacher and a really really good guy and turn him into this brutal drug lord, right? That's a complex character. And all those pieces were kind of there from the beginning. They just like slowly made themselves known to the, the audience as, as the series progressed, right? So you don't want to just have like, my character is this, right? My character is that. There's, um, there's a, I don't remember who came up with it, but of course it was probably in conversation with Gil Evans, <laughs> that, that we started talking about it, is, you know, is the, use the term like except when, right? So like um, Woody from Toy Story, you know, is, you know, is the, you know, is the friendliest, best toy and leader in the entire history of toys, except when his relationship with Andy gets threatened. Right? And that's what happens with Buzz Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear th shows up and threatens Woody's relationship with Andy. Now we see a whole other side of Woody. So you can take your main character and say, this is who my character is, except when this thing happens. And then that, and that's a trigger to explore another aspect, aspect of the character. And with Walter White, I think we, we start to see him just become this other person 100% of the time, whereas mm -hmm. it slowly starts with the car wash and then buying the jeans and seeing his son bullied, and, and you start to see it bubble out. Yeah. But, but it's not there yet, and mm -hmm. then finally it's full on and there's no turning back. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting, like, uh, just doing on me now, it's like a, another fantastic movie with complex characters was uh, Unforgiven. Like the, the Clint Eastwood movie from, I don't know, is it 20 years ago by now? 30? It's a long time. But yeah, a terrific, terrific, you know, Oscar winning screenplay. But, you know, but Clint Eastwood's character of, of Bill or William Money, I guess was his name, um, had this horrible past, but we don't know about his horrible past until we see him in, in, in the present as this kind of bumbling, inept, kind of broken rancher, his wife is dead, and, you know, and he's losing his abilities, like, you know, he's trying to, he was like, he was trying to shoot, you know, like, when he's thinking about going on this mission to raise some money to save the farm, 
you know, he tries shooting at some cans, you know, you know, in the distance with his pistol and he can't hit him. And he like goes inside and his kids are watching him kind of like unimpressed. He goes inside and he grabs his shotgun and he, because now he can at least hit it with the shotgun. So he's, you're seeing this guy who's like past his prime and, and it's only as the story progresses, you go, oh my God, this was the most notorious killer in the West, you know, who, who settled down and forswore his bad ways and is now coming back, right? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a very interesting story arc, but, um, but uh, you know, but he's not, but none of that is obvious at first, right? When you first meet Walter White, it's not obvious what he's gonna turn into. When you first meet you know, Bill Money, it's not obvious what he's gonna turn into. So, you know, it's a, I, I always found that stuff to be very inspirational as far as like developing a character and, you know, taking them on that journey and how do you, how do you layer in stuff like that, you know, and, and build it out. But, um, yeah, and there are all sorts of tricks and techniques to how to define that. But, um, yeah, I, I love that stuff. Why is it important for the main character of a story to be sympathetic? Well, this is controversial. Um, it's a sales technique. I, I mean, I hate to kind of put it like that, but again, I'm obsessed with stories that get sold because like anybody who's listening to this who might want to write something, um, I mean, I guess there are people out there, I, I've run into them who they're like, oh, I don't care if I sell anything, I'm just satisfying this artistic urge and you know, more power to them. But, you know, but I'm like, you know, like I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I've got four kids, I've got three grandkids, I've, you know, I've got a mortgage, I've got expenses, like people, it's expensive to be alive. And if you want to really devote yourself to screenwriting, I, I want, and somebody's coming to me for advice, I want to give you advice that can move the needle and, and try to help you not just achieve your goal of writing a script, like I, 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 not anybody can write a script, but almost anybody can write a script. Getting a script sold is a whole nother skill set. So for me, the idea of a sympathetic main character makes your script more saleable. So it's because people, I don't care what people say, they'll, yeah, I like my good anti-heroes, yeah, whatever. It's like, yeah, at the end of the day, the vast majority of people want characters that they can empathize with, that are sympathetic, that you're rooting for them to achieve their goal, right? That, you know, that's really kind of what I mean by sympathetic. It's like you, you want this character to, to achieve what it is they're setting out to do. You're rooting for them because now you're emotional. You as the audience, you're now emotionally invested in the story. Um, I was just watching something, who was it? I was just watching something the other night I wish I, it, didn't, it doesn't stick in my memory because it, it had this, this flaw is that you're watching the movie and where, um, I really wish I could remember what it was now, um, and where two thirds, three quarters of the way through the movie, it wasn't a TV show, it was a movie. And I look at my wife and I go, do you care what this character is up to? And she's like, no. I go, yeah, me neither. It, it, it's it, because the character, just wasn't sympathetic. It's like there was nothing there for us to root for. I didn't want them to achieve their goals, right? So, you know, so it, it was just, 
you know, kind of like one of these things where it's like, yeah, it got made, obviously. And I mean, things get made all the time for all sorts of reasons. But but if you want to break into the industry, you know, you want to you want to try to stack the deck in your favor as much as possible. And just in my experience, trying to sell a script with a sympathetic character is a much better business plan than trying to sell a script with an unsympathetic character. And I will throw a caveat on that, is that you also, you don't have to make every, you want to sell, selling a script and having a career are two entirely different things, right? Completely. Like, I, I would, I mean, and I'm, I'm not bad-mouthing them because, the, the, you know, they're at all. But you look up, you know, if you look up sort of the career trajectory of, um, you know, I think uh, Jeff Arch, who, uh, who wrote Sleepless in Seattle, right? Um, the original of it, you know, which, which you know, kind of got, you know, got rewritten by Nora Ephron. But you, and then you look up the career arc of, um, of Len... Get his last name, but he's he's the one who wrote Cable Guy, who started that whole sort of like domino effect of spec screenplay sales, you know, kind of back in the day, where he was one of the people as part of it. Um, it could have been Shane Black who started the 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 thing at, in the mid '90s, but um, but Len, blanking on his name, there's one. You know, look him up on IMDb, and and you'll see that that it that selling those scripts, which were great. Well, Cable Guy is not a great script, but it did it did. You know, get made. You know, but it it didn't it didn't translate into career security, right? So so the goal is not to just sell a script. The goal is to have a career. So so there's kind of almost like a two part kind of thing with this is that you if you can sell a script, you, you you're better off trying to sell that script with a sympathetic main character. But there is something also to be said to write a script that's unproducible. I know it's going to sound strange and very contrary to everything else I'm saying because an unproducible script becomes memorable in some weird way. So it's like that's part of building the career. This is part of feeding your family, right? So you, you, you can do both. And this is also why you, you, I, I, you know, I say you know, like make it derivative and make it fast. You know, why going back to my if, it ta- if it's taken you a year to write a script, you're not going to make it. Because if you can bang out two of these scripts, you know, like here's one with a really sympathetic character, and here's one that is this crazy script that's kind of unproducible but super memorable, um, and you can do both of those in six months, you, you're you're building up this like, oh my god, this guy's this this person has got depth and interesting things going on, right? But I'm going to buy this one, but I'm not going to forget this one. Right, I, I I got and this is advice I got from a producer who was telling me that that somebody and I had this advice. I was when I was doing research for my book, um, um, I was I was doing a, uh, interviews with producers, and this producer gave me this advice about about every 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 writer who wants to have a career should write something that's completely unproducible, um, and he gave the example of he had a script about whatever right completely unproducible. Nobody would ever make this movie. But many years after this producer read that script, he goes, I never forgot that writer. I never forgot that screenplay. I'm relaying this story now, right? Like, you know, I don't know how many years later, 20 years later, and I remember this story. 
So, so it makes you memorable, which is what helps build your career, um, but you want to also feed the family. So that's why the, you, you get to the, like the sympathetic character part. So you can write, have your unsympathetic characters, you know, or you know, your art. I mean, I would tell everybody that. Like, you know, you want to have your little, you know, you know, artsy fartsy, you know, interesting screenplay. Great, write it after you've got some money in the bank because you sold something that people wanted. You know, it's, you know, so that so to me, that's why sympathetic works. Do you think that's sometimes a deciding factor in in how far someone will go is that they think, oh, I'm selling out. But really it's a necessary, I don't want to call it an evil, but it's a necessary part mm -hmm. just as as showing up on time or whatever, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, selling out. I don't know what selling out even means, to be honest. I mean, I hear it a lot. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to be a sellout. It, it sounds like an excuse to me. It's like, well, obviously, unless you're living in your parents' basement, you know, and you don't need money or you're independently wealthy, then that's fine. Do whatever the hell you want. But it, assuming you want to make money at this thing that you're telling me you want to make money at, then you're not selling out. You're just being smart, right? It's like, I don't know, like if somebody wants to open up a pizza shop and, you know, and there's the absolute best brand of tomato sauce that everybody uses, you know, and everybody, every pizza shop that uses this tomato sauce, you know, everybody says, oh, the pizza is so delicious. And you go, I'm not going to use that pizza sauce. I'm selling out. I'm going to be different. I'm selling out. Okay, fine. Good luck with your pizza, pizza shop. You know what I mean? It's like, so I don't know what selling out means. I, I'm, I'm too busy trying to put food on the table to worry about selling out. And I think everybody are. So I encourage everybody, move off of that, right? Just don't hide. I know I'm sounding like really angry. I'm very angry right now. Don't hide behind expressions like selling out to cover up for your, your current inability to earn a living at, at what you're trying to do. Um, learn the skills and, and work on it and, you know, you know, read books and watch movies and join, you know, online, you know, uh, groups or even, you know, meetups, you know, and get together with people who love storytelling and movies as much as you do and, and don't take no for an answer and keep just saying, why did that work? And somebody says, oh, I think it worked like this. And you say, no, Schechter, you're wrong. Tell me again. Tell me again. Explain it. Prove to me. You know, like really approach it, you know, approach it like every other profession where people, you know, like, you know, are earning money and, and being professionals at what they do. And don't treat it like a hobby, you know. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, you know, is, is it, do doctors say, oh, I don't want to be a sellout? You know, do, and do real estate agents do, you know, maybe. Maybe they do. I don't know. People on Wall Street, you know, selling out. Maybe. I don't know. But, um, but in, in this profession, it's just like, you got to take care of business, you know, so. How important is it for the antagonist to be unsympathetic? Well, in my kind of balancing out of the forces in a story, they have to be wildly unsympathetic. But they have to believe that they're sympathetic. Right, there's, there's, so it's a, it's a bit of a distinction, not even a subtle distinction, right? They, they believe that they're the hero of their own story. So 
they maybe go, I'm misunderstood. I'm doing something for the greater good. And just you people are too stupid to realize that. Um, but they come off as wildly unsympathetic as a result of it. I mean, you, you want your bad guy. I mean, stories feel to me like they have to deal in extremes because otherwise, why are we watching it? Like, 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 oh, look, it's a family that's, you know, sitting together and they have polite conversation around the dinner table or, you know, it's like, that's going to be far less interesting than who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, where it's just fireworks from, you know, from these two families, you know, these two couples, you know, for two hours. Right. So it's like, that's what I think why stories exist is to live in the extremes to make you feel things that you wouldn't have felt in your normal life. So that when things do happen in your normal life, you are somehow you've experienced it, so you're somehow better able to cope with it. There's this book called Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, which looked at fairy tales and, and sort of the purposes of fairy tales. And a lot of the, the whole history of fairy tales was designed as horrible stories that you told your kids because the world was this incredibly scary place. So by by telling these stories, it would prepare kids for these potentially catastrophic things that were inevitably going to happen. So things like, um, um, like what was it like a Little Red Riding Hood, um, where you know she gets into bed with the wolf, you know, and it's the red cloak. I mean, it's it's all about losing one's virginity, you know, at least according to Bruno Bettelheim. You know, in, in in uses of enchantment and even things like you know, like you know like nursery rhymes. You know, um, you know, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. That was because of the Black Plague. You know that you know, the the ashes were from them burning bodies. You know, and we all fall down. You know, it's because they they thought that the plague was maybe carried by ash and smoke and stuff. So it was like, you know, so so stories had this had this purpose of and even Aristotle talked about it to create within you these very extreme emotions so that you felt like you went through that so that at some point in your life, if you're faced with a challenge similar to what you've experienced by watching a well-told story, um, you are somehow, you've got some emotional inoculation against against being devastated by these horrible things that happen because you've kind of experienced it through somebody else, somebody else's journey, meaning you're a character in a story, which is another reason why you go back to the idea of a sympathetic character, because if I'm going to learn the, the lesson in the extreme from a character, I have to sympathize with that character or empathize with that character. I have to feel that character very deeply. And that will benefit me as just a human being because I've, I've now experienced that emotion from that story more completely, which if we go by the, the Bruno Bettelheim, Aristotelian version of the purpose of story, makes me a better human or a human better able to cope with challenges in my life. So, I mean, so to me, like storytelling is, is such a noble purpose um, if, you, if you look at it that way. 
um, you know, that the, this whole idea that, um, you know, that you, you need the sympathetic character and the really unsympathetic main character so you can experience life at the most extreme edges rather than the top of the bell curve where, you know, everything is kind of fine and normal, right? You want to feel the, you know, the exhilaration of, the, of a sympathetic character overcoming challenges and you and you want to feel the danger and the 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 tension um of a unrelenting very unsympathetic antagonist uh at the other extreme so because that's going to make the victory that much better you know and then therefore the emotional connection that much better and therefore my ability to cope with things as a human being emotionally that much stronger so yeah, so to have like sort of characters that are straddling the fence, it could be a perfectly fine story, but it, to me it doesn't fully satisfy that sort of noble purpose of storytelling. Unless they drastically change. Unless they drastically change. You want to end. Right. Yeah, but you still, right, but you still want to have, but, but yeah, be careful with those drastic changes because you, you, know, you don't want it to feel artificial, right? That, you know, you, 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 you know, look, I think we all, there's a balance between compassion and justice. And you want, you know, if you've got like a really bad villain, do you want them to see the light or do you want them to have the snot kicked out of them, right? So it's challenging as a human being because as a human being, you say, well, you know, look, we have to love people. We have to have, right? But, you know, if, we, if we're gonna tell the fictionalized story of Hitler, do we want, the big climax to Hitler, you know, for Hitler going, oh my God, I've been wrong all this time. I'm so sorry. You know, Hitler goes on his apology tour and he really feels badly and he starts adopting orphans and he's just the best damn, you know, stepfather, adoptive father you've ever, no, I want, I want him dead. I want, you know, he needs to be punished for what he did, right? So, and I don't think that it's, indicative of a faulty humanity to want to see really bad people brought to justice. And even if that justice means having the snot kicked out of them. You know, I was just thinking, just Tom Hanks, that's almost always played a sympathetic character, except in Elvis, I don't know, there might be other ones. Elvis, he was definitely a darker character. Yeah, Road to Perdition. Oh, okay, okay, there, there you go, yeah. yeah. Um, Good. And, and, and it's it's on the top of my head because it's it's, it's famously, so few roles. Right. Almost Henry everything. Fonda. I mean, everybody lost their minds oh, okay. when he played the, the psychopathic villain in Once Upon a Time in the West. Okay. Right? Because Henry Fonda was... On Golden Pond. Yeah. Yeah. He was the everyman. You know, right. He was like sure. Jimmy, he was like the Jimmy Stewart. You know, it was just this... Right. You know, everybody loved... You know, he's just this... You know, and then he takes this role as truly the psycho... Frank, I think, was a character. The psychopathic... Wow. You know, villain, you know. But what's interesting is that, like, like, had you cast Adolf Hitler in that role, you'd go, yeah, yeah, we expect that. You cast Henry Fonda, and suddenly it's emotionally much more driven because you have such an association with Henry Fonda as everybody's dad. Sure. Right? You sure. Know, it's like it's the fall from grace. Is you, know, you drop something from an inch, it doesn't make much of a noise. You drop something from, you know, 10 feet, and it makes a big... Th you know, effect has a big thunk, 
So that's the thing with these characters. You know, it's like they play against type sometimes. What is the biggest mistake you see writers make with the antagonist? I think the biggest mistake I, I see often with the antagonist is that the antagonist is not committed to their goal. Like they, they want their goal, but they're not committed to it. Um, and the way, the, the way to become committed to it is to believe 100% in the correctness of the goal. So, so you, can have a char- you can have an antagonist who is you know, driven to do things, but, but if it just feels like they're doing it because they have nothing else going on, or they, they, they have to be really, like, really committed to it, really wanting it. I mean, like going back to Star Wars, you know, the, like the, you know, the emperor is the ultimate antagonist. He believes, he's not just being evil for the sake of being evil, he's, he thinks he's bringing peace and order to the, uh, to the, to the galaxy. Like without his agenda, you know, it's, he's like he's the ultimate believer, and you got to break a few eggs if you want to make an omelet. You know, if he doesn't, if he doesn't do what he's going to do, the the entire universe will fall into, into you know, some sort of state of, you know, of total chaos. You know, where he says, okay, look, uh, you know, maybe I have got to, I've got to destroy a couple of planets to achieve my my goal, but if I don't even more planets will get destroyed because there'll be such chaos. You know, you know, it needs like a firm hand, you know, on the, uh, you know, on, you know, ruling the universe. So, so he has to believe that, yeah, yeah, people are not going to like my methods, but now, but give it some time and people will, right? And that's, that's just one example of a, you know, of a, uh, of a character. That was what's so interesting about, um, about Joker, going back to Dark Knight, was that, was that he conf- he was just representative of chaos and and he knew he was representative of chaos and the brilliant part of the storytelling there was that everybody else was trying to figure out what is it that he's committed to everybody understands storytelling <laughs> like in 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 Gotham City you know when trying to look at the Joker everybody is like well you can't, he's, he's, they're not actually having this conversation. It's like, well, he's clearly the antagonist of our life right now. What is he really committed to? What does he really want? We, we have to be able to negotiate with him or, or talk to him or, or, you know, how do we, and, and, you know, and he, Heath Ledger, you know, brilliantly is like, he goes, do I look like I have a plan? <laughs> he goes, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like a dog chasing a car. I wouldn't know what to do with it if I caught it. Right, but everybody else is is trying to you know to ascribe some kind of agenda to him because they know that your antagonist is supposed to be really committed to something. He's not. He's just committed to chaos, right? So it was it was, it, it, it was kind of fascinating stuff, uh, you know, as far as like trying to look at it. You know, like what do people really want? It seems like, it, especially in the, the Joaquin Phoenix version of the Joker, mm-hmm. he was really committed to fixing the brokenness in, in himself, but he didn't even know it was fixing it. He was trying to alleviate the pain, mm-hmm. I guess, in some sense. Yeah. Uh, not to excuse what he did, but he was so broken and so misunderstood, and so that seemed to be what his choices were all based on. Right. Yeah, for, for sure. It'd be interesting. They, you know, they, they just announced the, um, you know, the Joker sequel. 
is coming out, you know, you know, Folly Adu, I think it's called, which is kind of like cool. So it's going to be him and, and Harley Quinn, who's not going to be Margot Robbie. Um, uh, it's, who did they just cast as uh, Harley Quinn? I, I don't remember. But it, yeah, people were kind of like, oh, it's a, it's a different take on it all. But, was, but, but Joker's sort of an interesting case because, because I'm not convinced, and not just me, I think a lot of people are not quite convinced that the entire story of Joker isn't taking place in his own head, like in the asylum. So in that, in that kind, if, if that's the conceit, um, then, you know, kind of, it's almost like all, all rules are off. But I, think, but I think you're right. I mean, in, in at least the Joker's mental version, if it is indeed just all taking place in his, in his own mind, um, then, yeah, he's very broken and is trying to cope with being broken in the best way possible, you know, and find value in himself for, you know, for that, you know, hence the whole, like, story with, you know, with, um, you know, the, the woman, you know, lives in the apartment and, and her kid and, you know, so it's, um, yeah, but it's, it's an interesting, definitely an interesting and sympathetic, right? He is the main character. Yeah, it's like you see, you know, it's... The proverbial undeserved misfortune, right? All the stuff bad that happens to him, he does not deserve to happen. And sympathetic is like he's takes care of his elderly mother, and you know, is very sweet with her, and washes her hair, and, you know. So it's like, but you know, he's he's the villain. Why is it hard for writers to talk about theme? It's hard for everybody to talk about theme. Nobody understands theme. I mean, that, that's a horrible thing to say, that nobody understands theme. Like, oh, as if I understand. It, it's just, theme is so complex, and so it's like ethereal. It's like, it's the proverbial trying to nail jello to a wall, trying to understand theme. It's like, you know, the... You can get all intellectual about it, and I, and I already regret saying like nobody understands theme because I'm sure there are people out there who teach in you know in college level courses, you know, and and deal heavily with theme, and they can talk very intelligently about theme. Um, I don't care because I don't know that that the super super intellectual understanding of theme helps you write one damn word. Again. I want people to have careers. I want people to put money on their table, you know, you know, money in their pockets and food on their table. And you know, you get all highfalutin and you know ethereal talking about themes and how they interrelate with the and it's like, okay, well you talk about that for a while, but why don't you write something? So I, I so for me, I, I I just try to figure out, okay, I'm not that smart. I just want to figure out what's the simplest understanding of theme possible that will help me write you know a, a story and and that's kind of where I stumbled across the this idea of you know you know it's defining theme very simply as you know heroes ask questions and villains make arguments and and that was kind of it I know I know it seems a little bit strange and simplistic to do it but but that's kind of the the way to approach it, you know, where it's like there's sort of it, it, and I guess there's a classic basis for it, where it's like you know thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? So you know, so you know, you go to um, let's see, what's a good one? I'm trying to think, you know, this idea of I'm trying to think like a really good example for theme where you know where 
Um, okay, let's we'll use Star Wars again. Okay, so this theme, you know, from a big view is science versus technology. What's more powerful, science versus technology, right? It's just a theme. You can have all sorts of themes. You know, is love love for family better, stronger than love for the universe? I don't know. You know, so you can come up with anything you want. Whatever helps you tell the story, go with it. Right? Don't don't think there's got to be one absolute. So for me, I went the theme, the the accessible thing that I could hang my hat on to tell a story in Star Wars for theme is, you know, it's science versus technology, right? And then you go, okay, heroes, you know, make, ask questions. What's stronger? You know, science versus technology, you know, faith, the force versus, you know, versus, you know, Jedi's versus the empire, right? You know, you know, empire representing technology, right? The Death Star is a big ball of technology, you know, as compared to the, you know, the Jedi's, which is, you know, little, you know, a vanishingly small group of people who are involved in faith, right? So, so Luke asks, not verbally, but this is Luke's thematic journey, is what's more powerful? He goes, I don't know, what's more powerful? Science versus, te or technology, I don't know. So he's gonna spend the whole story pondering that. Um, the, if you ask the, you know, the, you know, emperor or Darth Vader or general, you know, you know governor of Tarkin, you know, on the Death Star, the technology is, you know, Vader has an appreciation for, for faith, but he himself is a product of technology. Luke is asking the question, What's more powerful, faith or technology? And he grapples with that throughout the entire story, right? Everything is about, you know, is about that. Um, the, all the bad guys have no such questions. They make the argument, technology is strong. Like Darth Vader is a result of technology. He had faith and it didn't save him back when he had his fight with Obi-Wan. Um, so faith let him down, he's now, surviving based on technology. The Death Star is a giant ball of flashy, blinky technology, right? It's like, you know, the faith is gone from the universe, right? You, my friend, are all that's left of, you know, your faith or whatever, you know, whatever is said to him. Um, so the bad guys have no such questions. They are convinced. They, they make the argument that, that technology is stronger than faith. Luke is uncertain. And what does he learn finally at the end is that Faith and technology can work together, right? And that's where you get the ultimate strength, right? Because he uses, he uses when he destroys the Death Star, he shuts off the targeting computer, which is him rejecting technology, use the force, Luke, right? He's embracing faith, but it's like, it's not like he does one of, you know, the Obi-Wan two-finger air move and the Death Star explodes. He still uses technology to destroy the, the Death Star, right? He uses the torpedoes. So he's using technology in, in concert with faith, and that's the strongest of all. So it's a really an interesting lesson, right? That you don't have to, you don't have to reject, you don't have to be Amish, right? Where you're t rejecting technology, right? And you don't have to be, you know, sort of a scientific atheist where you're completely rejecting faith. You, you can be somebody who's embracing everything that the world has to offer in terms of both spirituality and technology, and that's where you get sort of a complete person. So, so for me, that's how you tell a story thematically. That's, that's what you need. So anything more complicated than that, if, if you feel like, you know, it's like, it, it, you know they, they 
talk about like what, what was the brilliance of of Trader Joe's over Ralph's, right? So you go to Ralph's and you want to buy ketchup, right? So you go to you, you look at the ketchup aisle and you've got 45 types of ketchup, right? And you just don't know which one to buy. So you, you probably go back to the you know, Heinz or whatever it is you're used to buying. Trader Joe's has like one, <laughs> you know, two types of ketchup, right? So the, they realized that, 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 that it seems like giving people a lot of choices is the right thing to do. It feels kind of magnanimous in some weird way, but it leads to the proverbial you know, analysis paralysis. So the same thing with thinking about theme, that people you know, have all these great, and, and I'm not saying they're invalid, they're just not helpful theories about, about theme and how theme works in, in, uh, in a story. So to me, it's like they, they all might be right and it all might be fine, and everybody who's taking a, a college-level course in theme, I wish you the best of luck, and I'd love to talk to you about it over, you know, over a Tito's one day. However, if it doesn't empower you to write your story fast, then it's useless. Absolutely useless. Again, I'm strict. I'm like, if it if it's if it delays you getting a check by two weeks, that's two weeks wasted. So you know, so I, I like to go with like what's the minimum amount of theme you need to tell a story? And the minimum amount I found over and over again is, you know, heroes ask questions and villains make arguments. How does a writer incorporate theme into stories? Carefully, <laughs> judiciously, um, possibly even subliminally. It's like I, to me, it's it's all these things. It's it's kind of like the pre-flight checklist that pilots go through, you know. And and I think you just like you keep referring back to it. So it's like all the principles, everything we've talked about, like over the last you know hour or so. Um, is that all, it's just stuff to keep in mind as you're writing so that if you get stuck when you're writing and inevitably you will, you could look at this list and, you know, and go, oh yeah, my, my, uh, my villains were not emphatic enough about their viewpoint about technology, you know, or my hero was, was too clear that, that faith is stronger, it, you know. So it's like you can you can look at a scene and you know and ponder it in terms of oh I'm in you know I'm on page you know fifty five and my central questions are not clear yet. Well, clearly I've overshot. So let me go back. So everything is kind of a test. So for me, for a writer to incorporate theme, it's like you got to like live with these concepts kind of as a holistic piece, right, as, as a whole. And, and until the, you kind of, they get inside your, your soul and your, it's like muscle memory, right? You know, that, you know, you, you have to just story muscle memory. So, so to incorporate theme really just should be as simple as, you know, you write a scene with a character and you don't have to chart it out ahead of time and say, what's, what's my thematic arc in this particular scene? Just go, or, 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 is it being true? Whatever the theme is, like Sleepless in Seattle. I know we talked a little bit about that before. So like Sleepless in Seattle, you know, the, question, it's the thematic question is, you know, can love 
you know, can, can the, the magic of love happen more than once? Right, that's, that's, that's it, that's the entire thematic question, right? And Tom Hanks kind of wonders, you know, um, you know, it's, you know, like, yeah, I, I don't think it can happen, you know, I'm pretty sure it can't happen more than once. So he's kind of willing to sell out, you know, you know right? So, you know, it, it's, it's funny, uh, you know, I, I think a way to really understand the story about it is, you know, it's you, Tom Hanks is some weird kind of antagonist in this because he's kind of convinced it can't happen once, right? You know, so, you know, I guess he's kind of pondering it at a certain point, but he's sort of convinced it can't happen once. His son thinks it can happen. Um, and, you know, and it's really kind of at some level, the main character might be Meg Ryan, who's wondering, well, I, you know, if I can meet this guy, could, could this magic of love happen again? So, you know, there is a way to look at that story that Meg Ryan is really the main character and Tom Hanks is the antagonist because he's the one who's really getting in the way of, of love happening another time, right? So, you know, so the, this idea that you just look at it and say, you know, am I being true thematically to what these characters believe and are willing to either question or fight about? Um, that's that's the way to incorporate it. That's just the way to to use it. So you don't want to bludgeon anybody over the head, and you can you can park it. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many screenplays I wrote before I had anything resembling an understanding of theme, and you know, there's no like. I know this is going to sound a little strange, maybe to put it this way, but it, I, I like everybody has a an innate storyteller sense and some people it's more intuitive and some people it's less intuitive so the reason why we have people like me talking about how we approach it is to, to is if you're an intuitive storyteller you don't need me you don't need anybody you don't need Blake Snyder you don't need you know you don't need you know McKee it might be interesting to read that stuff but you don't need any of that stuff because you just naturally get it um, for those, the vast majority of people who maybe haven't exercised that muscle and don't and aren't natural storytellers, you can use logic to get to that place of intuitive storytelling. Right? It's like, for example, you know, if there's, you know, like there, there, let's say there's a flood, right? We just had some flooding, like in the, you know, in the Midwest, right? So there's some flooding. Um, and somebody goes, okay, there's a flood. That means people ha are, have lost their homes. That means they don't have clothes to wear or food to eat. That means they're displaced. I have to help, right? So they've logicked their way to a place of I have to help. There are other people like, oh, there's a flood. I have to help. Like, like, like they, they just intuitively know what's needed. It's the same with storytelling. Right? Some people are just intuitive storytellers. That's why there's some people who, like, they'll, they'll go, you know, they'll look at, you know, not just mine, but anybody's kind of theories on story structure and go, ah, I disagree with that. I, I write stories. I never read one of these. Things. Yeah, because you're a natural story. You're, you're, you may, for I know, you're Mozart when it comes to storytelling, right? You, you know, sort of, a, you've got that natural ability. For the rest of us who are Salieri, you know, and who aren't Mo Mozart, we need tools and techniques to catch up to where you are naturally. Right, so so I think it's perfectly fine to, you know, put theme aside, write your story as intuitively as you can, and then just keep 
going back to it, you know, go back to all of it. You know, is my professional, personal, and private central question, is that clear enough, right, in this scene? And this is an extraneous scene. Do I have Luke going to buy a dog in the pet shop? Do I even need that scene? Is it sad, you know, are, are my archetypes falling out properly in the story? Oh, I have my main character, you know, being a, a warrior, you know, in the first scene. Well, that could be fine, but, you know, but maybe you've cut, the legs out from under him when he need really or her when when they really need to become a warrior later on you've, you've kind of diminished the power of this because you put it here right like steer away from right so you can use all this stuff as you know as sort of like litmus tests as you're working on your story to try to figure out well, okay why the hell isn't this working you know because it's very hard when you're in the middle of a story it's really hard to know what's working, what's not working, why is it not working is even more important. I know it's not working, but I can't tell you why. So, so it's really hard. So all these things, you know, theme included, are just things you can turn to and say, oh, well, maybe it's the theme. So you look at it from, you know, are my heroes asking questions? Are my villains making arguments? Oh, they are, okay, good. It's not working, but it's still not working, but I know it's not because the theme is wrong. So maybe it's the archetypes. So, you know, then you say, okay, is, you know, I'm in act one, is my hero a figurative or a literal orphan? No, not really. Oh, okay, maybe that's the problem. You're not setting up the main character right. So and that's a long-winded way to, you, know, you asked me about theme and I brought in everything else. But, it, it, but, it, it, but everything's all connected. You know, it's, it's all, nothing lives, in a, in a good story, nothing lives outside of itself. If you can pull a, something out of a story, it doesn't belong there. Or if you can pull something out of a story theory or a story structure theory, then it doesn't belong. And lastly, what if someone thinks, oh, I'm an intuitive writer? Good. What, but what if they're really, you know, it's hard for people to see themselves. We all think we're mm -hmm. one thing mm -hmm. and, and the world shows us that we're not. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we know though? I mean, I mean, what would, what would be the signs? You, you, you make money, you know, or you, you start, you, you start showing your script around to people. And, you know, it's like, like my experience is that, is that whatever the, you know, we all know the stories of, of the writers who, you know, they're working as a waiter one day and then they've been writing the screenplay and then they, some producer comes in and they, the waiter was so, well, you know, was so compelling that she asks the producer, oh, you know, we got, would you mind taking a look? And they read the script and, you know, this kind of, it's anecdotal, but it sort of happened to uh, uh, Diane Thomas who wrote uh, Romancing the Stone. Who, um, who actually I had the, the distinct pleasure of getting to know her. She passed away very young in a traffic accident. But I, was, I was selling computers at a computer store and she came in, this is in the mid 80s, and she came into the store to like, get a first computer and I was the resident screenwriting guy in the computer store. You know, back in the days when you know, everything was on floppy disks still. So I, I had a chance to work with her to help get her computer set up and teach her you know, kind of how to, uh, you know, how to use the technology and, you know, and um, we became friendly, I wouldn't say friends, but certainly friendly um, as a result. It was very sad when she passed away. But, but I think famously she, you know, she was a waitress and was working somewhere and had written Romancing the Stone and somebody knew Michael Douglas and gave it to him and he read it and he loved it and he bought it. And, you know, so, so you might think that that's, you know, like that, you went from here to here, you know, you know, 
instantly. And, you might, and people hear those stories and go, oh, that's going to happen to me. That's really what's going to happen. It's not. It's, it's the vast majority of people that I know who've had lasting careers in the business. It's like whatever the smallest possible incremental step forward that could happen um, is what's going to happen. It's like I, I, you know, I came to LA, you know, when I was 24, and I had two scripts written. One was better than the other, and you know, so you know, first I, you know, I couldn't get an agent. Then I got an agent, but the agent was not a good agent. Then I got a better agent, you know, and I still can sell any of the script. And I'm still writing scripts, and now I've got like four or five scripts, and, and I still can't sell a script. Then I can get a script optioned. Great, but it's an option for like ten dollars. You know, it's like it, it, it's like, you know, that's whatever the smallest steps are. So, so if somebody thinks that they're an intuitive writer, you certainly might be. Tr it might be true, but at a certain point, you know, you still have to, you still have to earn a living and you still have to make some money. So, um, so that's to me the ultimate test is if if you're feeding your family, then, you know, well done. You know, yeah, it's 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 really the same in any arts. Like how many how many artists have we heard? You know, who great artists Van Gogh died penniless, right? You know, intuitive artists died penniless. Yeah, nobody wants to wait that long to, you don't want to wait till you're posthumously recognized as an intuitive writer, right? So you might be find out, you know, write something. If it comes easily to you and you don't get stuck on page fifty five, you might be an intuitive writer. You know, or if you get stuck on page 55, you might be an intuitive writer who got stuck on page 55, <laughs> you know, right? So I don't know that there's an easy answer, but, um, but ultimately, I'm, I'm a market capitalist. So if the market announces to you one day that you are an intuitive writer, then you've done it. And the market might announce to you that you're a logical writer, that you've used logic to replace intuition even better. Because now you thought you, now you, can, you thought your way into it. That means you can think your way out of whatever problems you run into.